Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Um, as we are walking through the book of Romans as a church family, week by week, verse by verse, and we find ourselves five weeks into the book of Romans, and that's got us into chapter 2. So if you can turn there, while you're doing that, I want to take a second to greet and welcome and love and appreciate. For those of you who don't know, on a weekly basis, we have sisters who join and watch in the jails here in Sheboygan County. And so we just welcome you guys. We're so thankful that uh, you're with us, we're with you, and thankful for what the Lord's doing through our team who's there uh, serving you all. Church family, could we let the ladies know that we're thankful that they're with us? Amen. I heard some really great reports recently from what God was doing in that ministry, and so we're grateful for that. Um, as you turn into Romans chapter 2, uh, there's a story uh, that I've shared before. Some of you would know and remember. Maybe some of you never heard or maybe don't remember. April 19th of 2013 was a pivotal day in my life. It's the day I met Katie, my wife. And it was here in this building. It's a good place to meet your spouse. Uh, single folk, take note. And also beyond that, it was at a young adults gathering, a young adults group that I was leading. So also single folks, take note. <laughs> Turning point, young adults meet on Monday nights. I'm just saying that's a great place to meet somebody, right? Maybe that's not why we go, but who knows what God might be up to. Don't go just for that reason. But if you do, maybe God will do something. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I met Katie that night, and uh, I saw her and was attracted to her and thought, wow, she's pretty. Let's get to know her. And uh, getting uh, to talk that night, just small talk, hey, what, what are you into? And she was like, oh, I love volleyball. And I was like, I love volleyball. And it was like, oh, awesome. We found a connection pretty quick. And... I didn't realize in that moment that our love for volleyball was not equal. <laughs> so she grew up in a family that eats, sleeps, breathes volleyball. She played in college at Lakeland. Her brother played in college. They're like crazy good at volleyball to the extent uh, that like even just a few weeks ago when we we're all together as a family, they were watching volleyball on television for fun. And... Uh, <laughs> I guess I've, I've learned to take some fun out of that. But I'd, so anyways, that night uh, we talked and connected, and then it was maybe a week or two after that that I got the invite that they needed a sub on their rec team at the YMCA. And so they're like, hey, do you want to come play with us? And I'm like, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to show her, show her how to play volleyball. Yeah, that was funny. So we, uh, we, I, I go and I, I play with them, and I'm relatively athletic. I, pretty much any sports I can catch pretty quick and get to be decent pretty quick. And, uh, and also, I played in a church league that we had in Arkansas where I grew up, where all the churches in the community would gather together and play, and it was a legit league with rankings and trophies and stuff like that. And my church's team perennially was pretty good, and I thought I was pretty good. And then I played with them, and it became evident pretty quickly that there was a skill gap uh, <laughs> that although I thought I was good, I realized I wasn't as good as I thought. And then there was this moment in that game 
that, uh, maybe Eric and Kayla, you might remember this, where I'm up front, down at the net, and they serve, and with my skill and athleticism and height, I jump and block the serve. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm thinking I, I help them the team out, maybe impress Katie, and, uh, and, I'm, and then the, the ref points to the other team, noting that they get the point. It's not side out, we get the ball. And I'm like, what's going on? I wasn't in the net, like what's going on? <laughs> and, and I look around at my team, Katie, Eric, Kayla, and some others, and, and they're looking at me like, and what happened? Like, yeah, you, you can't do that. You can't block a serve. And I'm like, oh, this is where I'm learning Wisconsin rules. <laughs> and they're like, no, that's national rules. And I'm like, oh, I'm the idiot from Arkansas. Oh, we had our own rules. We made up things. Okay. Wow, this is embarrassing. Okay, hopefully we can recover. Well, I'm married nine years to her now, so I guess it all worked out. But hey, thanks. Yeah, that's not the point of all this. You're kind. But all of that to say that was the moment when I thought I was good and realized I wasn't. Now they've helped me get better, but still not on their level. Not only that, but that was also the day that I learned that I had been playing based on rules that were not the standard. Ah, here we go into the sermon now. That I had been playing for so long based on rules that were not the standard. Thinking that I was being successful and maybe in my own context in our little deceived Arkansas corner, uh, we were maybe successful. And as we are going through the book of Romans and and I know if you've been here every week for the last five weeks, you're going like, man, when are we getting to that good news part? It's been beating us up, but it's for our good. Paul is trying to help in this section that we're going to be in today. He's trying to help the Jewish Christians in the church in Rome, those who are trusting in their good works of obeying the Mosaic law, observing Jewish kosher diet restrictions, um, trusting in the confidence of their circumcision, the fact that they were lineage born from Abraham, He's saying, hey, you think you're good because you got a good serve in here or there, or you got a good hit or a good block with the volleyball metaphor. You think that your good plays outweigh your bad plays. The problem is you're not even playing by the standard rules of what this is supposed to be and accomplish. And that's not, not only that, but what you're doing, thinking you're helping the team win, is actually causing the team to lose the team, you. And, and if you don't realize that and, and turn from that, like if I kept jumping and blocking every serve, at one point they would have been like, okay, you're out, like get out of the game, because we would have definitely lost, because I'm breaking the rules, and the other team would have been getting the points. But sometimes in faith, or in our, in our faith in Christ, in our relationship with God, we do things thinking that we're in line with the way it works, which is contrary to the way that God actually set it up. And that's what we see in these Jewish Christians in the early church in Rome, that they were trusting in their good works, their lineage born from Abraham, 
rather than trusting in the Messiah they profess they believe in, Jesus Christ, they're going, yeah, Jesus, but also I'm circumcised and I follow these dietary restrictions and, and all of that, these ritual purifications. And so they're trusting more in the things that they do than in what Jesus did. Now, let's briefly, as we're going to continue on today in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, we're going to read a few verses before that to give us the context leading in Romans 2 and 6, talking about God, Paul says this, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, we remember from last week, Paul is not saying that if you want to be accepted or approved by God, obey the law. And if you think that's the case he's making here, all you've got to do is keep reading in this letter to the Romans, and it's only going to take the next couple of chapters for him to tear that argument down and make the case that that's not what he's trying to say here. What he is saying is that at the end of our lives, when we give an account for our lives, those who trusted in Christ for salvation will have done good works. They will not have been living in unrighteousness. That doesn't mean we're perfect and we never sin, but when we do sin, we confess it, we repent and turn from it, and we, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do our best to live in a way that pleases God. But it's not to try and gain acceptance from God. It's because we have been accepted, we have been loved, we have been forgiven. So let's remember, remember that Paul, in this section of his letter, is trying to, for what we've read for the last few weeks now, up until this week as well, he's trying to confront everyone, to declare everyone guilty under sin. That's the blatantly ungodly who are living in open ways of sin, those whose sin is seen and known by all, as well as the hypocritical religious individual who we talked about last week who knows the law of God, knows the commandments, and condemns people who violate those commands while also practicing violation of those commands themselves. Paul wants the ethnic-born Christian Jew in Rome to realize that they can't bank on their heritage, who they were born under the lineage of, Abraham, or their law-abiding religious works, their endeavors, they can't bank on those things to save them. And so he's about to unfold that a little bit more. And whereas this is aimed at the originally, in its original context, he's confronting the ethnic-born Christian Jew, the heart and principle of what he's doing here very much applies to church folk as well. It applies to us. So as we pick up here, Romans chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says this, for all who have sinned Without the law, meaning Gentiles, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, right here, Paul is saying in this first section those who have perished or those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
Why is that? Well, this is because, as Paul pointed out in chapter 1, that everyone is without excuse because God's invisible attributes are clearly seen and perceived by all. We talked about this in the very first week of Romans where Paul says that everyone, every single human, whether they want to admit it or not, in the deep core of their heart can look at everything that God has created and in their heart know that there is a God. And it takes degrees of cognitive dissonance. It takes intentional suppression of the truth that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 to reject and deny the truth that is plain to see for all. And so Paul says that because that, because everyone sees and everyone can know, beyond that, what we'll see as he's about to say in a minute, is that even their own conscience bears witness to those truths and that they live in a way where they acknowledge God's law even though they don't know God's law. And so in their heart, God has set eternity in every man's heart. He's set an awareness of God in the heart and mind of every single individual. And what happens is because of love for sin, People suppress that truth, harden their hearts until they can finally get to a place where they just outright reject that truth. And because of that, even those who have never heard God's commands, their conscience tells them better and they know. And even though they don't know that it says, thou shalt not do this, they still in and of themselves collectively agree with moral standards that there are things they shouldn't do that they still violate. And therefore, they perish without the law. Then beyond that, even those who have sinned with God's law, Paul says, and all who have sinned under the law, meaning the Israelite, the person who has received God's commands, received God's law, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Meaning not only do they know better because their own conscience, their own sense, internal sense of morality tells them that they've done wrong, But they especially know better because this is the group of people that God has actually given the law to. So they really know better because they have the law. God literally spells it out for them. Here's right. Here's wrong. Here's do these things. Don't do these things. And therefore, because that has been given to them, they will be judged against that. What we see from this that we are all responsible to walk in the light we have received. Every single one of us is responsible to God to walk in the light of the truth that we have received. A lot of times the question comes about, what about people who've never heard around the world? But Paul's saying and making the arguments here that they know. And it's proven in the fact that there's things that they deem as wrong. And yet every person who has deemed some things as wrong is still in secret moments or in in moments of their heart, or even before others, has done things that they themselves would have declared or acknowledged as wrong. All of us are responsible to walk in the light that we have received. If you come here on Sunday, there is a sense, I'm going to say something that I kind of hesitate to say as a pastor a little bit because the ramifications of what I could say, but I need to say it anyways. There is a degree to where coming to church is dangerous, Because you hear the truth and then you're accountable to it. You hear the truth and you're accountable to it. Now, if you're sitting here going, well, I'm going to stop coming to church because I don't want to be accountable for this stuff. I'd rather just not know it. Well, Paul's slamming the door shut on that saying, even if you perish apart from the law, you'll be judged because you know better anyways. It's better to know the truth 
and respond to the truth than to not know the truth. Amen? Let's go on in verse 13. He says this, For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. This is what we're talking about, their conscience. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, when Paul says, for it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law, Paul is not saying, hey guys, we got to get better at obeying the law. Because it's, the he- it's not the hearers that are righteous, it's the doers. So we got to get better at doing. Now this is a lot like the sentiments. It sounds really familiar with a few months ago when we went through the book of James, right? Where James to the church is writing and he says, hey, we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers also. That if we're hearers only and not doers, we deceive ourselves. Paul making, or I'm sorry, James making the case saying that, hey, you say you have faith in Christ, but you have no good works that, that attest to that. You have no fruit, no evidence that you actually do have faith in Christ, because if you did, you would have good works as a response to that faith. That's relative, similar, but there's some nuanced difference here. Where in the letter that Paul is writing to the Romans here, he's saying, hey, you think you're safe, You think you're safe because of a few key good works under your belt. You were born a Jew. You were circumcised, born of the lineage of Abraham, having received God's law. The problem is you're trusting in those good works to save you. And if you are banking on those good works to make you righteous, when I'm telling you that it's those who do the law who are justified, not those who hear the law, I'm telling you this to try to get you to look in the mirror and get you to be honest with yourself that you can't do the law. You've tried, right? You have tried your best. That's true for the ancient Jew and the old covenant. That's true for the, for the Christian Jew in Jesus' day, for all the Gentile believers in Jesus' day and in the early church. And it's just as true for every single one of you and me here 2,000 years after Jesus after Paul wrote this, that all of us know better than what we should do and compared to what we actually do. And so it's not, the issue is not in knowing the truth. There's a deeper internalized issue. And Paul's saying if you're trusting in those good works to save you, okay, if that's the route you want to go, the problem is you have to do all the things then. If you're going to trust in your works To make you right with God, your ability to obey God and please Him through your obedience to the point where He welcomes you into His family. Okay, if that's the route you want to take, you have to perfectly obey all of it. Without a flaw, without a mistake. You have to perfectly obey the law of God, full stop, no exceptions, 100% perfect obedience. Who's feeling good about that? No, why? Because you know nobody's perfect. We know that. We're taught that from a young age. We see it in ourselves. 
that none of us can measure up to that standard. But, but Paul doesn't leave it there. Because even at everything that he said so far, pointing out the blatant sin of the ungodly who have suppressed the truth for the lie, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the glory of lesser things, created things, that group of people, even though he's magnified the hypocrisy of those who know the law and, and condemn those who violate the law, yet practice violating the law themselves, all of that, he recognizes that there is still some people who would still be going, yeah, okay, I'm good. I'm not living in this blatant sin over here, and, and I'm not telling people to do things that, that, or telling people not to do things that I do, so I'm good. And if you're sitting there thinking, like some of this audience would have been, that, man, I'm good against all that list of ungodliness in chapter one, those <laughs> sinners... And I'm good compared against chapter 2's examinations of hypocrisy, those phonies. He goes on in verse 16 to say this. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets of men will be judged. Not only the things that we hypocritically say one way and do another way in front of men, but... The things that behind closed doors no one else sees, no one else knows. Except God who Hebrews tells us all things are naked before his eyes. That there's nothing hidden from him. But it's not even just the things we do in secret when we think that no one's watching. It's even more pushed into that than that into matters of the heart. Things that, that we entertain and mull over and fantasize about in our heart and mind without ever even truly acting on them. If you don't believe me, don't you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to a bunch of people. A massive crowd is gathered on the side of a mountain, and he's preaching to all of them the greatest sermon that was ever preached. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old. And he's talking about the Mosaic Law to Israel. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I think all of us can step back and go, good law, right? Not murdering is good. That's a good thing to have in place in society. It's a good thing to have in place in our relationship with God. Thou shalt not murder. And most of us, if not all of us, are going, yeah, I, I'm clean on that. I check out on that one. And Jesus doesn't leave it there, though. What does he say in verse 22? He says, but I say to you, saying, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And he's talking about God's law. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And every single one of us who is going, wow, yeah, Jesus, you tell the murderer, you, you, you go get him. And everyone who's angry at his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh-oh. That's where all of us are brought into that same category wherein we might want to look at the murderer and go, oh, thank God I'm not like that. I know, I, I know nobody's perfect, but I'm not a murderer. So one up on them, Jesus says, yeah, but have you been angry at your brother? Because before God, this is all a matter of the heart. And it doesn't just stop with what you literally act on and do. I've heard people 
in the last year in different conversations say, you know, there's this certain temptation to sin, uh, but I never act on it. And I'm going, that's good that you don't act on it. Praise God for that. But if you're using that to convince yourself that you're good or that you're righteous, Jesus doesn't give you that. He doesn't give you that much. He says, if you're even angry at your brother, that's an internal heart thing. Well, let's keep on. He goes on. Later, he would say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Fail, (laughs) right? All of us have been there. All of us have. And so if we're sitting here and we're going, man, I'm doing a good job because the command says don't commit adultery and I have not committed adultery. (laughs) Jesus says, yeah, but do you look at porn? Okay, okay, maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you've slammed the door shut and got accountability things in place and and done a lot of really wise things and had battles there to where you're not looking at it anymore. Praise God for that. That's, that's a massive victory in many people's lives when you can get there. But do you imagine and fantasize about others that are not your spouse in your heart and in your mind? See, whatever we want to use as the measuring stick, Jesus says that's not high enough. That stick ain't high enough. Because ultimately, all of these laws and commands, in fact, in case people aren't getting what Jesus is saying, at the end of this section where he's saying, you've heard this law, I'm actually upping the ante. You've heard this one, it's not, it's not, let's look at the murderer, but let's look at our anger. It's not look at the adulterer, but let's look at the lust in our hearts. Every single time he goes through all these things, upping the ante. You know what the last thing he says in that section is? He says, therefore, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So if there's someone in that crowd who's going, yeah, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at managing my eyes and my heart, and I don't look lustfully at the opposite sex, and, and uh, I'm not angry at my brother. Even if someone is so self-deceived to think that they've never sinned or struggled in those ways, Jesus just goes, in case this isn't clear, be perfect. Nobody hears that except for the fool, the most self-deceived fool. Nobody hears that and goes, I got it. No. This is what Paul is trying to do here as well, dialing up the microscope bit by bit by bit to say, man, God is going to judge the secrets of men. And guess what? That ought to be a terrifying statement to every single one of us. That ought to be a sobering truth to you, to me, to all of us. The God who sees all We will stand before one day. Going on in verse 17, Paul comes back to the conversation about the hypocrite. He says this, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And let's consider what Jesus said. Do you who say who don't commit adultery, are you adultering in your heart? You who, abhor idol, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is Paul saying, the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about you because you say one thing and do another, and the Gentiles or the pagans or the ungodly look at what you say and then how you live, and they blaspheme God because of your contradictory behaviors contrasted against the truth that you know and profess. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul, turning on that microscope, dialing it in to get to the molecular spiritual level, that for all of us, whether we know different things or don't know different things that we should or should not do, there's not a single person listening to my voice who has not violated truth that they know. And therefore, every single one of us is without excuse before God, the God who sees all. And even, like many would have been in this church, not only does God see our misdeeds, but He sees our missed motives where you could be doing a good thing and sinning. You could be doing a good deed. You could be giving money to the church in ways that you hope someone sees how much you gave. You could be serving to try and impress others. You could be doing good things with wrong motives without glorifying God because you're doing it for yourself. Notice what was the last thing he said there in verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from God. And he's saying, listen, the, the true Jew, the true child of Abraham, remember the promise to Abraham? And maybe you grew up in Sunday school like I did where you were singing, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. I already had that one going, so left arm. What does that song even mean? You're a child of Abraham if you have faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's explained at length in Galatians, in Paul's letters to the Galatians, and we're going to see some of that in the letter to the Romans. But he's saying the true Jew, the true son or daughter of Abraham, is not someone who was just born in the bloodline. It is someone, not just someone who's gone through the ceremonial acts of fleshly circumcision on the outside. That the true Jew, the true child of God, son lineated from Abraham, is the one whose heart has been circumcised. The flesh, the sin of heart being cut off. That person's praise is not from man, where you use the good works to try and go, See, hey, everyone, come see how good I look. But instead, are going, God, can I please you in this deed, in this moment, in this motive? See, one of my favorite authors, Jared C. Wilson, he said, the fundamental problem for every human being is not an unmet felt need, but the unkept law of God. That's the problem. Because Paul is saying here, you broke one of them, you're out. You're done. That circumcision you're trusting in, if you broke one of God's law, that circumcision is null and void. You have to bat a thousand. <laughs> like you coming up to the plate. How many times, unfortunately, the brewers gave us a nice early exit again. Can you imagine if the brewers had someone on their team that bat a thousand? Like no one can do it. It's impossible to bat a thousand. But if someone could step up to the plate every time, even though the team is botching it, and even though they've had a great year getting all the way to the playoffs, doing like they like to do, and then early exit, what if there was one person who's got, you guys are going to drop the ball, but I'm going to bat a thousand every time, and I'm going to carry us into what you can't carry us into. That's what Jesus does. And that's a silly metaphor using sports to try and translate that in our relationship with God, when we step up to the plate to bring what our good works can bring to the plate to God, he's going, yeah, you're batting not well enough. <laughs> You've got to bat a thousand. Your hitting percentage doesn't get you in. You foul tip. You strike out swinging and looking. You can't do this. You trip running to first base and get thrown out. Your play is not good enough. But Jesus steps up to the plate. Home run, home run, home run, home run, home run, home run, home run. Can you imagine what it would be like being on that team where you can just know every single time that this person gets to the plate, they're going to hit a home run? That'd be a pretty wonderful feeling, right? Scripture is meant to give us that degree and more of confidence in what Christ brings to the plate for us. That's the good news of the gospel. We're not good enough. He is good enough. And we get to share in victory because of his work, not our own. Back to the volleyball metaphor that we opened with. Paul is like, listen, you think you're good at volleyball, but if you're going to be accepted into God's family, you have to hit an ace 25 times in a row, three games straight, 
perfect game, no flaws, no mistakes, can't hit one in the net, can't hit one out to the side, can't sail one out the back, can't even have a volley returned. You have to, if what you're hoping for is to be accepted by God, you have to play an absolutely flawless, perfect game with no mistakes, no misdeeds, not one time, only perfection is accepted. Every single one of us recognizing that's what Paul says. If there's anyone who's still going, yeah, I'm not like that bad group, and I'm not the hypocrite, and Jesus zooms in to just heart motives and the secrets of men. Every person should have come to a point of despair wherein we recognize there's a holy God who's seen everything I've ever done and even the bad motives I've ever done, even the things that I try to do right, that my motives so easily go bad. Like, can I confess, every week when I get up here, I want to impress you guys. That's pride and it's sinful. That's a fight with sin I have to have on a weekly basis. And before you go, wow, pastor, Look in the mirror. (laughs) This is all of our condition. We're going to find in Romans 7, Paul says that sin still dwells in our flesh. Romans 8 is going to tell us about that war, why we need to walk in the Spirit. But the problem is, until you recognize that you're in trouble and that you're not good enough, you keep bringing your subpar batting percentage to the plate going, okay, I'm going to do better this time. It's only when you recognize, I don't got this. Jesus, can you, can you help? Can you save me? That is the only point. That is why Paul is so loving and so faithful to come to us and say, here's the mirror, guys. Whether you live just in licentious sin, or if you're the hypocrite who says one thing and does another, or even if we have to zoom in to the secrets of the heart and what's done when no one else is watching but God, every single one of us is in trouble. And it's loving to help us see that. There are two prophecies in the Old Testament, one from Ezekiel chapter 36, where the prophet Ezekiel says, for God, by God's power, he says, and I will give you a new heart. Speaking for God, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And God telling his people, your heart's the problem which is why in the new covenant, I'm going to give you a new heart. Because it doesn't matter, obviously, that you know the right things to do and the wrong things that you don't do. In fact, what we'll see as we go on in Romans is that God gave that law as a hurdle that would be too high to jump, that we would try and fall over and over until we would finally get to the point of desperation to go, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with you is your ability born in sin, dead in sin, 
And until you repent of sin and trust in Christ and his performance at the plate on the cross, his perfect obedience of the law, his perfect fulfillment of the law, his perfect pleasing of the Father, until we trust in what he brings to the table, not what we bring to the table, we're damned. But the day that we finally look in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm not good enough, and trust in Christ, that's where Ezekiel says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. I will cause you, meaning it's no longer about our power. Now, what if that team not only had the person who could bat a thousand every time, but then what if that person somehow came inside of you and then gave you the ability to bat? And, and we're not just talking about cute metaphors here where we're trying to like be winners in life. We're trying to be successful. No, we're talking about the work that we have to do to be accepted by God is not good enough. God sent payment through Jesus Christ on the cross to perform for us in our place. And if we repent and trust in him, believe in him as the son of God, trust in him for our salvation. And it's not that the law doesn't matter anymore. It's that he fills us with his Holy Spirit and thereby empowers us to live in a way that pleases him. We see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's not so much that we need to be taught or reminded of the rules. There's a place for that as as a hurdle we can't jump it's not so much that we need to be taught or reminded of the rules. It's more so that we need an EKG, an MRI, a CT scan. We need testing to dig beneath the surface of what can be seen with our eyes and can reveal the secrets of men. We need a diagnostic that can reveal the sickness of the heart. Jesus is like that faithful cardiologist who tells that painful, hard truth, who you're sitting down with and you're going, okay, doc, I know I've got some hard problems. Um, just tell me, like, like how, do, how do I need to eat? What dietary changes do I need to make? And like, what exercise habits do I need to have? This has been a wake-up call for me, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna try harder. Just tell me what I need to do. I'm here, I'm waking up, and I'm committed to it. And that cardiologist, in his love for you, says, oh, buddy, listen, I don't think you realize, yeah, those things are important, but your heart's so bad that if you don't get a transplant, you've got no hope. This is what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are talking about, taking out the stony heart of sin, the heart hardened against God. We're like a faithful, loving, kind cardiologist who cares about us, would tell us the truth and say, hey, if you don't get a transplant, you're in trouble. And 
then that good and faithful cardiologist then says, and you know what? I've lived my entire life perfectly caring for my heart. I've only ate kale my whole life. And and I only drink water. And I've done all the perfect exercise routines and I've done everything just right. My heart is perfect and strong. And because I love you, even though you have wronged me, even though you have betrayed me, even though you have been my enemy, I'm going to lay my life down and the help of the Holy Spirit's going to take my heart out and put it in you and give you a transplant so that not only will you know the way you should live, the diet and the exercise that you should have been practicing this whole time, but now you're going to have the desire and the power to actually do it. That doesn't mean we're sinless or we won't make mistakes. You will, but when you do, you confess and repent and trust in Christ. And when you sin, you don't go, oh no, I I messed it up, I botched it again. No, the Holy Spirit is within us. The grace of God is there. And what we're gonna see later in Romans is that Paul says, hey, where sin abounded, all the more grace abounds. We We don't just need to know the rules. We need a new heart. And if we're gonna get serious, if we are going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're going to have victory over sin, if we're going to win the battles of temptation, if we're going to please God in our lives, it will be by the Holy Spirit within us. It will be by us feeding our spirit, our spirit getting strong and our flesh becoming weak. He comes to dwell within us. Changes our heart to where we want to please and serve. And he gives us the power to actually do those things. And if you're here this morning and you're going, man, I've never been honest with myself about my need. I haven't actually realized that the standard's perfection and I bat like 150. All you have to do is trust in Christ. When you get to stand before God one day as every single one of us will. When you stand before him one day and he says, why should I welcome you in? Of all the answers that we would want to spit out, there is one right answer. The one right answer. If God says, why should I let you in? The only right answer is this, because Jesus paid my way. That's all I got, God. That's my only hope. Is if what I'm bringing to the table is what we're measuring, I'm in trouble. But if what Jesus brings to the table is what we're measuring, I'm in. And I'm placing all my hope on what he did on the cross. Placing all my confidence for me to be standing before God and him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's not going to say that because I did a good job. He's going to say that because I trusted in his son and what he did. And so today, if you're uncertain in your confidence meter on whether or not you would be accepted and welcomed as you stand before God, if your confidence meter is weak, is it that you're trusting in your abilities, your righteousness, your good deeds instead of Christ's? Or is it that you never have trusted in Christ? If that's you, I'm not going to say, hey, repeat a prayer after me. I'm going to invite you to stay in your seat and wrestle 
and in your own words, talk to God and say, God, I recognize now, I see I'm in trouble and I need a savior. God, would you forgive me of my sins? I wanna trust in Jesus Christ. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me new? And if you're sitting there going, wait, 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 let me write that down. I, I, I don't know how to say all those things. God's not looking for your perfect words. He's looking for a genuine contrite heart. That's what we see in all this. God's looking at the heart. Repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ and he will give you his Holy Spirit and make you new and give you that